We're right at a point where Paul... Let me turn this down a little bit. It's kind of feed me. Uh, Paul is uh, celebrating God's sovereignty. And uh, we're going to be talking about that today. So if you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Last week we uh, looked at a message in, in, in nine, Romans 9 here. And we talked about it's time to examine your faith. And um, we... Uh, talked about how there was spiritual Israel, there was um, natural Israel, and the two are not the same. And so it's the uh, same within the church. There are people who profess Christ, who say they're Christian in their lifestyle and their morality and everything else, but they may not be born-again believers. They may not be saved. And so Paul brings up this matter with Israel, but it really applies to us as well. And so follow along as I read um, from verse uh, 6 down to uh, verse 18, just so we have it all in its context. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the spirit, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah has conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? And this is really our text this, this morning. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. If you have children or you grew up in a family, inevitably, when you were young, you uttered the words or you heard children utter the words, that's not fair. You hear that all the time. Um, and see, this is what Paul is anticipating here in this text. Uh, we want everything to be fair in life. And a lot of times... Our parents, when we would say that, would respond with three other words. Life's not fair, right? <laughs> and you went, oh, that's how life is. Um, we want it to be fair. We want God to be fair. So we think. But what does that mean? Now, remember, in Romans chapter 9 here, verse 11 to 13, Paul wrote about... Jacob and Esau, and he said, even though they didn't do anything, 
the older is going to serve the younger, which went basically against the cultural norm. And uh, he said, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I hated. We looked at this the last couple of weeks. And you say, well, wow, does God hate? Yes, he does. But it's a holy hatred. It's pure hatred. It's not the kind of hate that we think. And so Paul knew that if we're tracking with him at any juncture of his writing here, we would respond, and maybe last week and maybe the week before you sat here and you heard the message and you said, you know, that just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem logical. It doesn't make sense. It's not fair. And Paul knew that that's what his readers were going to respond with. And it's if Paul was saying that God made his decision to bless Jacob and reject Esau based on the fact. See, some people conclude this. Well, what that means is that God foresaw that Jacob would decide to trust in God. And God foresaw that Esau would reject God. And based on that, that's why God loved Jacob and hated Esau. The problem is that's not what it's saying. (laughs) That would make sense. That would make logical sense to us. That's perfectly fair. There's no problem with that at all. But clearly that's not what Paul intended to mean. That's not what he's saying here. Because he goes out of his way to make clear that God chose Jacob and hated and rejected Esau apart from anything that they did. He says it right there, so that his purpose, look at it, according to election would stand. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sit well with me. I don't like that truth. But that doesn't make it untrue. (laughs) We want things to be equal. We want things to be fair. We want everyone to have an equal shot at salvation. We want that salvation to be linked in some small way even to something that we do or something we believe or or something that we trust in. We want to be able to say that somehow I'm saved because, well, I made that decision on my own free will to believe in Jesus. See, then we can take some credit for the wise decision that I made and pity those poor people out there that just don't understand. You can take some credit for your faith or my faith. But note that even though Paul knew that this line of reasoning would provoke objections, because this is a hard teaching. This is probably one of the hardest texts in the Bible to really comprehend and understand and accept as truth. But look at what Paul does. He doesn't soften it. to to avoid any controversy, even though he knew his readers probably were going to well up with a bunch of opposition and questions. He didn't soften it to avoid that controversy, but instead it's almost like he he doubles down. (laughs) He asserts it even more strongly. John Calvin, in one of his commentaries, says this, Some pastors, to avoid controversy, will not teach the doctrine of election. They know that it upsets people, so they soften it, or they explain it in a way that makes God seem completely fair. See, Paul doesn't do that here. He doesn't. He raises the objections 
that he knows people will have. And then rather than softening the point, he really kind of strengthens it. Look at what he says in verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Or look at verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Why did Paul teach this? It just seems so controversial and so hard to accept. Well, the first reason he taught it, and it's there in your outline, was because the Holy Spirit inspired him to teach it. See, we like it back in Romans 8 when we're talking about, oh, nothing, all things, you know, uh, we're more than conquerors in Christ. Neither death nor life. And we go through that. Well, this is definitely inspired. Then we get to this text and we go, I don't know. (laughs) No, it's inspired. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had Paul write this down because it's true. He gave that spiritual truth to Paul so that he could give it to us so that we could have a better spiritual understanding. We could profit from it. See, even though some of these writings that we're going to be looking at the next couple weeks are hard to understand. And a lot of people who were maybe, you could say, untaught, unstable in their faith, try to explain them away so they distort what Paul is saying here. These are scripture, beloved, and they're given by the Holy Spirit to make us wise unto salvation. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. So it's inspired by the Spirit of God. Secondly, Paul wrote these things because they are in line with the, what the rest of Scripture says. I mean, if you have a Bible that puts Old Testament quotations in small caps, you can easily see that Paul, Paul builds his argument here in Romans 9 on the Old Testament. Because you see it over and over again. It's in chapter 9, verse, uh, verse 7, verse 9, verse 12, verse 13, 15, 17, 25 to 26, 27 to 29. Also in verse 33. What's he doing? He's building his argument from the Old Testament. So it, al- it aligns with, it agrees with other scriptures. But then thirdly, Paul put this in there. The Lord had him put it in there because Paul believed What scripture says, God says. See, this isn't a book of suggestions. We believe this book to be a holy book. We believe this book to be a book that contains truth. And that truth doesn't need to be made relevant. That truth is always relevant. We don't need to take what God is saying in his word and change it up and and try to make it relevant for our culture or our society or young people or anything else. No, it's, it's very clear what Paul is saying. If you can read, you can, you can read it. And so the scripture says what God says. And in verse 17, he says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh. See that? So Paul had faith in the word of God. He then quotes from Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, which is actually God speaking to Moses. And Moses had not yet written the Torah, the first five, five books of the, the Old Testament, But what God said to Moses in is what Scripture said to Pharaoh. Scripture is authoritative because it's God who's speaking to us. Never forget that. That's why sometimes when you teach something that's found clearly in the Bible and somebody says, well, I disagree with that. I mean, my response is usually the same. I don't care. You're irrelevant. 
This is God's word we're talking about. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It's still God's word. And so Romans 9 does not consist of the opinions of the Apostle Paul, which people are free to accept or reject, agree or ignore, disagree with. No, Romans 9 is God speaking to us with his authority through Paul, an apostle, to tell us what we need to know and how those truths can assure us of our salvation. And that's really what Paul's main subject here is. How can we know that God's promise of salvation will not fail? How can we know? Paul's answer is simple. It's this, that our salvation is secure because it does not depend on us. Our salvation does not depend on us. It depends on God's purpose according to election, he says. As the sovereign of the universe, God always accomplishes what he purposes to do. He chose some for salvation apart from anything that they do. And he rejects others apart from anything they do. We need to submit joyfully to that truth because it's God's authoritative revelation of himself. But Paul knew that some would, you know, have a problem with this. Paul knew without a doubt that some would say, well, that's just not fair. That's not fair, Paul. So what's he teaching us here? He's teaching us as the righteous sovereign over all, God is not unjust to grant mercy to some and to harden others. Because all deserve his judgment. I mean, when you look at this paragraph and when you look at what Paul is saying here, you see, first of all, in verse 14, Paul raises and he responds very uh, energetically to the objection that God may be unjust to choose some and harden others. That's an objection we cannot raise. And then in verse 15, he cites Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. Why does he do that? Because he's, he's, he's supporting his earlier statement in verse 13 of chapter 9 when he says, Jacob I loved. He concludes in verse 16, so that it doesn't depend on man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And then in verse 17, he cites Exodus chapter 9 verse 16 about God's purpose with Pharaoh. What's he doing there? He's supporting his earlier statements in verse 11 and 13 of chapter 9 of Romans. So that God's purpose according to election would stand. And he says, Esau I hated. And then he concludes everything in verse 18. He says, so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And that supports verses 13 to 14. That God is not unjust to love one man and keep his wrath on another. On the basis of of justice, some like Esau, some like Pharaoh, receive judgment. On the basis of mercy, others, like Jacob, are the objects of God's love and God's salvation. 
But no one gets injustice because all deserve judgment. So that kind of like an overview. Look at the first point there in your outline. And you'll see what Paul is reasoning here in verse 14. He says, what then shall we say to this? See, he's anticipating a bunch of people going, hey, wait a minute, stop, stop. This isn't fair. So he says, well, what should we say to this? And what he's saying here is the righteous sovereign over all. It is outrageous to think that God could treat anyone unjustly. See, if you know anything about God, you know one thing for sure, that he's holy. He is perfect. He's pure. There's nothing in God that could ever be classified unjust. And Paul is responding to what he knew many would think about his statement in verse 13. That God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. Well, what shall we say to this? There is no injustice with God, is there? Look at his response. May it never be. That's a very strong response. Paul is saying basically the very question, even the idea that you're bringing up such a question, is outrageous. Because you're talking about the God, sovereign God of the universe, who is holy. See, by virtue of who God is, God cannot possibly be unjust. In Genesis chapter 18, Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, it says this, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is what? just? The answer is obviously yes, he will. Because God is sovereign, because God is holy, we cannot conclude just because some of these teachings make us a little uncomfortable that it is unjust. Calvin says this. It's up there on the screen. I think monstrous surely is the madness of the human mind that is more disposed to charge God with unrighteousness than to blame itself for blindness. James Montgomery Boyce said this, Even if God should save people on the basis of something in them, faith, good works, or whatever, this would actually be injustice. Because people's backgrounds are unequal. Think about it. What would you rather have? God select some people for salvation, not based on anything they did. Or would you rather God save us according to something that we did, our backgrounds, maybe our good works? See, due to their natural temperament or being, maybe they were raised in a Christian family. It's easier for some to be more trusting. And for the same reasons, it's easier for some to be good. It's easier for some to be moral people. If God's election were based on those factors, it wouldn't be fair to those who were raised in a violent, in an immoral, or maybe a pagan background. 
To raise the question of fairness presupposes that you have rights. And we live in a society where everybody's got rights. And that your rights were somehow violated. But look at the other side of the coin. If you have no rights, then you have no basis to claim that someone is treating you unfairly. And the last time I checked, because we all have sinned, we're all without excuse. We have no right to accuse God of being unjust if he did not grant us his mercy and salvation. Because his justice would only bring what we deserve. Turn over to Matthew chapter 20. Because Matthew kind of, Jesus lays this truth out in a parable here in Matthew. And and it's just a very practical way of, of showing you that God's ways are not ours. In Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. All right, some of you have businesses. Some of you know what it is to hire someone. Some of you, sometimes you may even hire somebody for a day or two. Well, look at this guy. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, which was fair, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour... He saw others standing idle in the marketplace. So he hires some for denarius. And then he goes back around mid-morning. And uh, he hired more workers. But look at what it says. It says, um, and he said to them, you go out into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, what? I will give you. Okay. They trusted the man. Verse 5. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour. He did the same thing. So he goes out over a period of of several hours at noon, mid-afternoon, and then right before sunset. Look at what it says. He Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour... He went out and found some others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? Verse 7. Then he said, then they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Now, this is late in the day. It's like an hour before quitting time. And when evening came, time to quit, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those who hired were hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received denarius. Now think about it. Everybody else is watching this play out. All the other workers are standing there. All right, you guys who just got hired, come on up here. Puts a denarius in their hand. They're thinking, wow, this is pretty good. And the other people, what are they thinking? They're thinking, wow, this well, not, not right away. They're thinking, man, if, they're, if he's paying them a denarius, and I've been here since 6 in the morning, man, I'm going to get a lot of money. I'm going to get more than just one. Even though they agreed to just one, that's what they're thinking. 
And so they're kind of getting excited because they're thinking, man, if they got just a denarius for one hour, I've been here all day. It says, verse 10, now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. <laughs> Equal opportunity employer. <laughs> he just paid everything, everybody the same. Which was a fair wage for a day's work back then. So it's not a big deal. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, Hey, wait a minute. This isn't fair. These last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorch of the heat. Look at verse 13. But he replied to one of them, friend, (laughs) I like this. I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? The United States government would say no. <laughs> right? That's what they would say. They'd say, no, you don't, you don't have the right to do that. Or do you begrudging, begrudge my generosity? Verse 16, so the last will be first. And the first will be last. See, we don't like that story, do we? It doesn't seem fair. The last group received exactly what the first group received. See, the landowner would have been unfair if he had not given to the first group what they deserved, what he had promised. That would have been unfair. Because they agreed to work a day's wages for a denarius. And that was a fair wage. They got what they deserved. The last group received grace, you might say. Which, according to the owner, he was free to give. He was free to be generous with whomever he chose. See, and you have to put it into perspective back to Romans... As sinners, both Jacob and Esau both deserved what? They deserved God's wrath. They deserved God's penalty of judgment. Well, Esau received wrath. Jacob got mercy. But please understand, there's no unfairness on God's part for treating them in that way because that's what, they, what God chose. brings us to our second point is the righteous sovereign over all God is free to show mercy on whomever he wishes see we we think sometimes that we're in charge we're not in charge beloved God's in charge and in verse 15 back to Romans 9 Paul cites a text out of Exodus Exodus chapter 33 and he he wants to explain to his readers, why God is not unjust to show mercy. And then in verse 16, he draws a conclusion. And it says in verse 16, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. 
and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. I mean, at first, this exodus from 30, or this quote from Exodus chapter 33 doesn't sound like any kind of explanation. It's like, what's he talking about? It seems like he's just restating the same problem that God is arbitrary and unfair. But you have to go back and you have to understand the context in which God spoke those words to Moses. So turn back to Exodus chapter 33. See, he had gone up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. While he was there, the people grew restless. They asked Aaron, you remember, to make the golden calf. And they all basically went downhill and just uh, worshipped this idol. They were all guilty of gross idolatry, immorality. And after Moses destroyed the golden calf, he executed judgment on the leaders. He went back up the mountain to make atonement for their sin in Exodus chapter 32, verse 30. And in that context, Moses, like Paul in chapter, uh, or chapter 9, verse 3 of Romans, prayed that if God would not forgive the people, then he could blot Moses out of his book, the book of life. Now, just take my life. God, if if this is the way it's going to be. And God replied that he would punish those who had sinned. So Moses, being as bold as he was, he continued to plead with God for his presence to go with them. Then Moses, he, he boldly asked God to show him his glory. That's Exodus 33, verse 18. And God replied in Exodus 33:19, "I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you." Well, what's the name of the Lord before you? What's he saying? Look at what it says, the next phrase. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. See, to paraphrase, God is telling Moses, "This is the essence of who I am." My glory is displayed by my freedom to show mercy and compassion on whomever I wish. And I'm not obligated to show mercy to you or to anybody else because all have sinned and justly deserve my judgment. But you know what? I am free to show my glory both by giving mercy to some and also by withholding it from others. That is who I am. That's basically what God told Moses. One commentator, uh, Thomas Schreiner, says this, No human being ever deserves his mercy. The choice of Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau must be construed as a merciful one. In other words, the stunning thing for Paul was not that God rejected Ishmael and Esau, but that he chose Isaac and Jacob. For they did not deserve to be included in his merciful and gracious purposes. Human beings are apt to criticize God for excluding anyone. But this betrays a theology that views salvation as something God ought to bestow on all equally. What is fundamental for God is the revelation of his glory. 
in the proclamation of his name. And he accomplishes this by showing mercy and by withholding it. God's righteousness is upheld because he manifests it by revealing his glory both in saving and judgment. God's glory is manifested both in his act of saving some and his act of judging others. God receives glory for that. And there's only a a slight difference between mercy and compassion. Just kind of a side note. Compassion focuses on the feelings that you have. Sympathy for those in misery. Mercy is the action to relieve that misery. That's the difference. They're very close. But compassion focuses on those feelings of sympathy, whereas mercy focuses on the action to relieve their mercy, or to relieve their misery. And both words point to the underlying fact that all have sinned, and we all deserve God's judgment, righteous judgment. I mean, if you want God to be fair, if you talk about justice, you know what? We're all going to be justly condemned. But God doesn't give everyone what they deserve. To some, he shows mercy. To some, he shows compassion. According to his will. Not according to anything that the sinner merits or he deserves. Because all sinners deserve is judgment. And so he reinforces this in his conclusion in verse 16 here of chapter 9. So that it does not depend on man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who what? Shows his mercy, who has mercy. It refers to God's bestowal of mercy. It doesn't depend on a man's decision to accept Jesus. It doesn't depend on any human effort. He says they're running. He gives an example. It depends on God who has mercy. Thomas Schreiner also concludes, he says, this verse excludes in the clearest possible terms the notion that free will is the fundamental factor in divine election. See, he's answering the question for those people that read this and say, well, I believe God looked down through the quarters of time and said, well, based on Jacob's decision, based on Esau's decision, that's why he chose them and didn't choose him. No, the Bible doesn't teach that. Paul is saying that God freely determines, according to the counsel of his will, those to whom he will show mercy. And in verse 16, he excludes the idea that we determine our own salvation by exercising faith that originates in us. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this in his commentary on Romans. He says, if man can originate faith, then it's something that he can do. It becomes a work that merits the reward of salvation. If that were so, then no one would ever bring the charge that God is unjust and unfair or unfair. Jacob believed and God rewarded him with salvation. Esau did not believe and was judged. That's fair. So Paul here, he's asserting the difference between these two men. But it wasn't anything that they did or they didn't do. The difference was that God showed mercy to one, but he withheld it from the other. As the sovereign and righteous God of the universe, he has the freedom to do that. 
Sinners have no claim against him. But some, even today, will contend that God's love demands that he show his mercy equally to everybody. One teacher that believes this is the teacher by the name of uh, Dave Hunt. Now, he does some good stuff too, but on this, this area, he's just out in left field. He fights with every fiber of his being against the doctrines of grace. In one book, he writes, It is not loving, period, for God to damn for eternity anyone he could save. Do you hear that? I mean, it is not loving, period, for God to damn for eternity anyone he could save. He uses this illustration. He compares it to a doctor who has a cure for a plague, but only gives it to a select group. His contention assumes that God is not able to save everyone. (laughs) It assumes that God is not able to save anyone. He'd like to save everyone, but because of man's free will, God just can't pull it off. They just won't agree. But Paul's next two verses soundly refute the assertion that God would save everyone if only he could. That wasn't God's plan. Third point here today, as the righteous sovereign over all, God is free to harden whom he wishes to display his glory. Like I said, these are hard truths, beloved, but it's what the word of God says. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 defends God's righteousness in withholding mercy from some according to his purpose. As he did with Esau in verse uh, 11 and 13. So it says here, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up. God raised up Pharaoh? Yes, he did. The Bible says that God raises all up in authority over us. That's why, you know, with the election coming up and everybody's freaking out, don't freak out. God's in control. God's going to bring us a president whom he chooses. And whoever will be president next year will be exactly who God wants to be president of our country. We may not like it, but that's the truth. Do we still go to the polls? Do we still express our right, our freedom? Yes. You know, as we, the video this morning, you know, showed some of the sacrifices that were made so that we have that freedom. So we can live in a country where we can go to a polling station and, 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 and vote for whoever. You know, and the, the idea that some, I hear people all the time, especially Christian people, I'm getting in a soapbox here, but that say, oh, well, I don't like either candidate, so I'm just not going to vote. That's not right. That's not right. And you need to really pray hard that God would give you the wisdom to do the right thing. I mean, the idea that we're going to have a born-again Christian as a president, it ain't going to happen. So, I mean, you've got to vote for somebody. Just think about that. Because, you know, God will give you the grace to make the, the right decision. But see, God raises up those people. He's included us to be part of that process. 
So I know that you can't just check off on any candidate everything that they agree with. And we get that. So you, you sit down and you kind of figure it out. I know it's the last of two evils probably for some, but that's, hey, that's fine. But don't forsake the opportunity you have to be part of the process. So Paul, in verse 18, he draws this conclusion. He says, so then God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. To point out the obvious, Paul does not say this. He does not say he has mercy on whoever believes in him. Doesn't say that, does it? He hardens whoever does not believe in him. Doesn't say that either. I mean, if you, if you conclude that is what Paul is saying, I mean, you're basically just taking everything Paul is teaching here and standing it on its head. It's ridiculous. And we're not dealing with Paul's opinions here. We're dealing with what Scripture says. This is inspired Scripture. Therefore, God is saying this. We need to submit joyfully to it, as we explained a couple weeks ago. See, but it reveals something here about God's perfection as God that we need to know. Paul is saying that God is not unjust to raise up a proud sinner on the stage of world history and use him for God's greater purpose of demonstrating his power and causing his name to be widely proclaimed. Well, God did that by hardening Pharaoh's heart, by bringing the plagues on Egypt, culminating in the destruction of Pharaoh, the destruction of his army as they pursued Israel across the divided Red Sea. We remember that. I mean, God could have chosen to be merciful to Pharaoh. He could have chosen to be merciful to the Egyptians by softening their hearts and by telling them about the need to put the blood on their doorpost to escape the wrath of the destroying angel who killed all the firstborn. But what did God choose to do? He chose rather to harden Pharaoh's heart for a greater purpose of displaying God's glory and power and judgment so that his fame would spread throughout the earth. See, as the righteous sovereign over us, beloved, God has the freedom to harden sinners for his greater purpose of displaying his glory and power in righteous judgment. Some commentators say, well, they try to get off the hook. And they say, well, they try to get God off the hook. And they say, well, by arguing that God, they they argue this, that God only hardened Pharaoh's heart after Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Thomas Schreiner says this. He says, a careful analysis of the Old Testament text also reveals that God's hardening of Pharaoh precedes and undergirds Pharaoh's self-hardening. And it is an imposition on the text to conclude that God's hardening is a response to the hardening of human beings. God announces twice to Moses in advance that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. It's only after this that the account says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. You can study all that out on your own. This doesn't mean that God coerced or caused Pharaoh to sin. God does not cause us to sin. God is pure. God is holy. Pharaoh was responsible for his own sin. 
But the Bible has many examples of God using evil people, even Satan himself, to accomplish God's sovereign purpose for his glory. All he has to do is withdraw his restraint and leave sinners to their own sin. That's what we studied in in Romans chapter 1, right? That's what's lived out for us on a daily basis in the society in which we live. And when he's through using these sinners for his purposes, he he justly judges them for their sin. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 11 to 12 it says this Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth who had pleasure in unrighteousness See it's 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 blasphemy to accuse God of being unloving. Because he did not save everyone. Because everyone justly deserves God's judgment because of their sin. He is not unjust to grant mercy to some to display the glory of his grace and to harden others to display the glory of his righteous judgment. I remember R.C. Sproul giving an illustration. And um, I think it was at a shepherd's conference. But he said that he he taught a a class, an Old Testament class, of about 250 students at at the college where he was a professor. And he told them in the first class that there would be three papers due. The first would be due on September 30th, the second on October 30th, and the third on November 30th. Now, you know what happened. September 30th came, and he received 225 papers. 25 students came to the class begging for mercy. Please, Dr. Sproul, we didn't budget our time wisely. We're still getting all this stuff together. We'll do better the next time. Please don't give us an F. Can we just have a little more time? Dr. Sproul, being gracious, said, okay, you have two days to get the papers in. Thank you, thank you, thank you. On October 30th, Dr. Sproul said he received 200 papers. (laughs) Fifty students were late. They pled with Dr. Sproul, please, we had midterms, we had all this stuff going on, homecoming, we had all sorts of pressure on us, please give us one more chance. He said, all right, you have two more days. Well, the students were literally singing, we love you, Dr. Sproul. They wrote a song for him. He was the hero of the campus. On November 30th, there were only 150 papers turned in on time. In other words, 100 students were late. And when Dr. Sproul asked them, where are your term papers? They replied in a casual way, don't worry about it, Dr. Sproul. We'll get them to you soon. He got out his grade book. Johnson, you don't have your paper? F. That's not fair. Harrison, you don't have your paper? F. Went through all 100 students. 
He says, is it justice you want? Yes, yes, we want fairness. We want justice. All right, you were late on your paper last month. I'm changing your grade to an F. (laughs) On the first one, you're, you're getting an F. See, and he went on to explain, if we experience grace once, we're grateful. If we experience it twice, we're a bit jaded about it. By the third time, we expect it. We demand it. If God doesn't choose me, then there's something wrong with him. It's not me. See, by grace, definition is what? It's something God is not required to give. It's undeserved. See, the question we need to be asking, beloved, is not the question, why not everyone? The question we need to be asking is, why me? Why did God save me? That's the question that should consume our mind. If any of you are standing before God on judgment day, and you are damned on that day, you will not be able to blame God. You will not be able to stand there and shake your hand, your finger in God's face and say, it's not fair, you didn't choose me. Rather, God will be glorifying glorified in judging you for your own sin. On the other hand, if you are saved here today, when you stand before God, you will not be able to boast in your own faith. Because it's only by God's grace that you were ever saved. Let me say, if you haven't received God's abundant mercy, God's grace, then you know what? Read about the publican in Luke 18, 13. He was broken by his sin, and he just cried out to God. He lifted his, his, his hands to heaven. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Beat his chest. He was broken. That's a prayer that God will hear and will answer when it's prayed from a sincere heart. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are just in every way. That we don't have any right to claim unfairness when it comes to your judgment or when it comes to our salvation. Father, we don't know who you chose before the foundation of the world. Only you do. We do know that those will come to faith in Christ. But anyone here this morning who has heard the gospel of Christ that calls for you to turn from your sin and turn to a Savior who loves you, who gave himself for you, who desires you to cry out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then you too will receive the gift of faith. You too will be saved from your sin. Not based on what you do or who you are, but based on God's sovereign choice. And so we prayed this morning, if there's any here who have yet to cry out to you, Lord, that you would work in their heart. The Bible says very clearly the only way that we can come to you is if you draw us, if you persuade us, if you convict us of our sin, then we will come broken and we will trust in you as our one and only Savior. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.